0: This is an Equity Veats Media podcast.
1: flushcarecom slash weight loss.
2: Equity,
3: my. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at
2: 20 is humorous. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Made, it's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy Ren. How's it going, bro?
4: I'm very good, Bryce. We love doing these episodes at the end of every month, our Ask Us Anything episodes where we farm questions from our website and from our Facebook discussion group and try and answer them all on the podcast, so I'm excited to get stuck in.
2: That's right, Ren. It is that time of month where we answer all of the questions, well, as many as we can, that have come through all of our social forums and online from you, our audience, so looking forward to getting stuck in, as Ren said. But before we do, uh, we have a pretty exciting event coming up, our first live and virtual event of 2020. We are partnering with BetaShares, to do a Q&A with the founder, Elon, to answer all of your questions when it comes to ETFs. There's so many in our community at the moment that we thought there's no better opportunity than to give you the chance to ask them directly. So to register for our free event, which is on the 11th of August at 7.30 p.m., head to betashares.com.au forward slash equity dash mates. That's betashares.com.au forward slash equity-mates, to register for your spot and also to submit your questions. We're pretty excited about it, Ren. We're going to be sitting down, having a couple of beers, talking to Elon and, uh, you know, chatting with you guys in the community. So very much looking forward to it. There will be prizes on the night and you will have the chance to directly ask your questions, but we'll also take in all the questions that are coming through and uh, make a bit of a night of it.
4: Yeah, now Bryce has been pushing BetaShares to produce an unethical ETF, which caters to all of his vices, you know, the drinking, the smoking, the gambling, all of that stuff. Not true, not true, So if you want to ask the status of the unethical (laughs) ETF, you can ask Bryce that on the night.
2: Well, look, I'm equally looking forward to asking about that because uh, it's something that I'm unaware of, friends. So So just to confirm, head to betashares.com.au forward slash equity dash mates. Uh, to register and submit your questions. It's a free event, August the 11th. Obviously, unlimited spots. And Ren, we've copped a bit of flack over the last couple of years when we've done live shows in Melbourne and Sydney only. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to get to the other cities within Australia. But this gives all of you an opportunity to join us in conversation with beta shares All things ETFs. So looking forward to it
4: yeah can't wait
2: now so we've got a number of questions to get through and as always in trend we'll finish with a speed round but first one comes from one of our listeners Ren and he says hey fellas love the podcast curious about tax implications when rebalancing your portfolio every 12 months which we have recently spoken about in our hypothetical portfolio thinking the capital gains tax will eat up any advantage of keeping the portfolio balanced what are your thoughts on this?
4: Yeah. So there's a few elements to this. The first one being that we are not tax professionals. And if you want to ask about your specific tax circumstances, you should speak to an accountant or a financial advisor, but we'll answer this in general terms. So the first general rule is that when you're rebalancing, you may be selling positions that have gone up and also selling positions that have gone down just depending on when you bought and when you are selling. You know, if you've been drip feeding into a position that's gone up a lot and then has gone down towards the end of the year, potentially you can follow last in first out. We'll get to that in a second. So first of all, remember that you need to record all your capital gains and all your capital losses because your capital losses can offset your capital gains. So that's the first tax protection. But look, in a general sense, when you're rebalancing, you're going to be selling the positions that have appreciated in value. So there will be a tax event. If you've held this position for less than 12 months, you won't be eligible for the capital gains discount. So that's always something worth keeping in mind. In Australia, if you hold a asset for longer than 12 months, you are eligible for a capital gains discount. So that's something to keep in mind and potentially your rebalancing period becomes every 18 months if your tax professional advises you that that's the best and most tax-efficient way to manage your portfolio. The only other thing to talk to your tax professional about is whether you're following a first-in-first-out or last-in-first-out accounting principle. Now, the first-in-first-out is basically you know, if you've been dollar cost averaging in and let's say you own a 100,000 shares in a company and you sell a 1,000 of those shares when you're rebalancing, are you selling the shares the first 1,000 shares you bought or are you selling the last 1,000 shares you bought? And that decision can give rise to different tax implications. It can give rise to potentially incurring the discount discount. It can change the amount you've made or the amount you've lost on a share or on an asset. So that's definitely something to speak to a tax professional about and then they can help you structure it in a way that is the most tax efficient. So we can't give personal tax advice because we don't know your personal circumstances. There's a few things to think of but I think from my perspective personally, rebalancing every 12 months is probably not the most tax efficient way to manage your portfolio but potentially the gains you get from rebalancing two assets that have underperformed and then as things revert to the mean, you know, the overperformers slow down, the underperformers speed up, in theory is outweighs the tax implications. But, you know, that's something to speak to and a professional about. Nice. All right. Next one for you. So uh, obviously everyone is wondering when the right time to get into the market is. So question for you is, is it worthwhile just sitting on the sidelines for a little bit longer before jumping in? With all the talk of the US markets potentially crashing, is it worthwhile seeing what course coronavirus takes over the next few months before investing?
2: Great question. The way that I think about this is look, no one knows what's going to happen with the market. It's impossible to try and time the market, as we've said many, many times on this show. So the way that I am thinking about this, given that there is a lot going on in the markets, a lot of money being pumped in from from governments and from the Reserve Bank, from the Fed, there is one side that is drip feeding from my point of view into the markets, but I'm also keeping a bit of cash on the side, knowing that there is a potential for something else to happen. So I'm not absolutely jumping in with everything that I've got, pouring all my money in and trying to ride this wave. I'm taking a very cautious approach, but also I know that, you know, over the last sort of 10 years, that cautious approach has led to me missing out on some gains. So for me, it's more about, being in the market but making sure that I manage my exposure to the market knowing that the upside at the moment is somewhat uh, treacherous and there is potential for some sort of significant downside so look I'm not going to say that yes go in or no don't put anything in I think it's all about how you manage the money that you have and you can certainly play both sides I think being in the market is important but to what extent that's kind of up for you to think about.
4: Yeah, I think on one side, the parallels to 2000 are really starting to come out in the media. And there's reasons for that. Coronavirus is obviously picking up. That will slow the economy down. So on on one side of the ledger, there's a lot of reasons to be bearish. But for me, the thing that I'm always reminded of in the back of my mind is if you go back to the headlines around 2008, 2009, The amount of people that were calling a double-dip recession, the amount of articles that were written on it, the amount of talking heads that were talking about a double-dip recession that just never materialized. I also think like no matter what the indicators say, the market has this unbelievable ability to just keep rising. And so I'm very much taking the same approach as you cautious but not staying out, Yeah. drip-feeding in. If some of the investments that I make now lose money in the short term, I can live with that because I'm not looking to pull that money out in the short term. So, yeah, I think a cautious and systematic approach during this period of heightened risk is the right way to do it. Have a plan, figure out how much money you don't need, Yeah. drip-feed it in. I would say, obviously, it depends on your personal circumstances, but... For me personally, that's how I'm approaching this time.
2: Yeah, risk management is the key here. So, Ren, this one's coming in to do with dividend reinvestment plans for overseas companies, but you're investing in Australia as an Australian. Are you able to participate in international dividend reinvestment plans?
4: Yeah, so this is one I actually hadn't come across before and I actually didn't know the answer to it. I looked it up before this episode. It turns out Australians can't. Now, I haven't looked into it enough to understand the reasons why, but yeah, apparently Australians can't participate in overseas dividend reinvestment plans. Well, there so you go. it means we have to receive the dividends in cash. Buy then, back in. And then if you want to rebuy into the company, you have to buy back in and incur brokerage.
2: Yeah, right. So
4: unfortunately, that's the way it is. Yeah, do yeah. with that information what you will.
2: Fair. Now, uh, I'll ask you this one again, because when I had a look at this question, I didn't have an answer for it, but you indicated that you did. This was from Jack, and he was wondering if we had any insight into fake meat ETFs and where they can be traded. My Sort of research show that there weren't any direct fake meat ETFs, but do you know anything otherwise? Fake meat is a very niche. I think what there's
4: Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods is Mm -hmm. the other one. I don't know about any other companies that do it. I mean, you could broaden the ETF to include companies that sell fake meat, but I think it's probably too niche. There is an ETF that may be of interest to people who. Are looking to get exposure to fake meat. Its ticker in the US is VEGN and it is the US Vegan Climate ETF, the first ETF or the first fund to specialize in vegan investments. So that'll hold fake meat companies alongside a lot of other sort of vegan focused companies. It also holds companies like Microsoft, Apple and Facebook. So <laughs> you get a bit of tech exposure there if you want. So that's one that people may be interested But I was having a look and uh, there are actually 64 ETFs with Beyond Meat holdings. So, there's plenty of ETFs that give you exposure to the fake meat trend. So, ETF.com is the website where I saw that there were 64 US traded ETFs with Beyond Meat exposure. Yeah, right. The other thing is if you have a really strong conviction about fake meat, there's probably not that many companies. Maybe you could just spread your money across them all yeah. if you have that level of conviction and if you've done the research on the companies so yeah vegan climate etf ticker v-e-g-n maybe one otherwise there are 64 etfs or 63 outside of that vegan one that you may be interested in or it may be a case of there's not enough companies in the industry to create an etf around that particular niche but you can basically you know diy etf and spread your money across the companies in that industry All right, next one for you. I really liked this question. I thought this one really made me think. So it comes from Luca and the question was, what is the most important investment-related lesson you have learned since the podcast started?
2: I mean, this is a massive question and probably one that we could dedicate a whole episode to. I think there's many, many lessons and has made me put me on the spot here a little bit. I think, I think it is broadly to remove the noise and just stick to your strategy and remain in the market, drip feed in. I think there has been many, many times that I've been caught up in the noise, caught and you know, you, you look at... Investing over the last 15 years, we've been through a couple of cycles. We've been through GFC. We've now been through COVID. We've been through the correction in 2000 and what it was at 1718. And look where the market is now. If I was able to remove the noise that was going on at that time, stay calm, stay focused, and just consistently put money into the market, I'd be in a very, very good position now. And that's something that I'm continuously trying to still do today: is is remove that noise. So I think for me, it's it's to try to do that. What about you, Ren?
4: The biggest thing for me is that there's no right answer. The pursuit of the perfect investing strategy is a quixotic pursuit that will just confuse you and is unnecessary is the main thing. Every strategy has its merits. There's plenty of ways to make money in the market. And I mean, there are wrong ways. There are stupid ideas and dumb ways to invest, but... On the whole, every expert we've spoken to, we may not fully agree with, we may not fully take their advice on board, but everyone has elements of logic and elements of ways to make money. And so for me, the journey of equity mates has been a journey of broadening what I think I'm willing to invest in and ways that I'm willing to invest. And to give a really specific example of that, we came in pretty hot. On the back of a massive growth in ETFs when we started this podcast and low cost, we hate fees, indexing seemed to be what a lot of experts were telling us, what a lot of reading was indicating and that for me was a sort of real cornerstone of my investing philosophy. Over the journey, I've realized that whilst that is obviously a really important part of my portfolio and a really important part of wealth building you know, for the next few decades, active management has its role and I'm willing to pay more fees where ETS perhaps don't provide the right level of coverage or provide the right level of insight that's required. So things like small caps, things like emerging markets, and then also just really skilled asset managers. I'm willing to pay higher fees because I understand more Hmm. that they're also a great way to make money. So for me, it's been a broadening of my horizons and the the appreciation that there's plenty of ways to make money in investing plenty of ways to make money regardless of what assets take your fancy and what assets you want to invest in for me the biggest thing that I've learned through this journey is that it is just an absolutely foolish decision to make to not invest
2: yeah the biggest risk is not investing at all yeah I think to follow on from that point, Ren, um, it's there, are, yeah, you're right. There is no one way to make money, but it's important to find the way that works for you and just stick to that. A lot of people try and chop and change and do this and listen to mates' advice and put money here and put money there and inevitably get themselves stuck a lot. And to your point, there is no sort of soul, this is the way to do it. You might take the Buffett approach. You might take the day trading approach. But whatever works for your personality, works for you that you're not going to freak out and do stupid things, I think you're right. That's a massive thing to consider.
4: Yeah. So next question for you, Will asks, can you give us your thoughts on some more thematic Targeted ETFs, and he gives some examples, things like FE or HAC or ATEC or IXJ. I'm not familiar with IXJ, but
2: I mean broadly, my thoughts are that I re- I like these ETFs in in from a conceptual point of view, like they're they're targeting areas that are growing in terms of importance or industries that are becoming more relevant in society, or allowing you to invest your money. Broadly across sectors that you might be interested in, so that you don't necessarily have to go and spend your money on individual stocks within them. You need to definitely consider what is in all of these stocks, particularly within Australia. You might find a lot of overlap with some of them. So that's something to, you know, if you've got the A200 and then you go a thematic, you might find that there's sort of a 60% crossover, for example. And I'm just sort of spitballing those numbers. But Definitely consider the crossover between the ETFs that you are buying into, but broadly my thoughts on these thematic ETFs are generally I I love the idea of them and I think they're only going to get better. And more importantly, there's something to consider in a portfolio construction.
4: Yeah, so in a general sense, I love the concept of these thematic ETFs. I own some of them that expose me to particular trends that I think are going to be really important. In some ways, I'm surprised there's not more of them. Like, for example, I don't believe there's a coronavirus ETF. It would have been so easy to do ticker CRNA or something similar. BetaShares or Vanguard or BlackRock release it and it just holds every single biomedical company that's trying to work on a vaccine or is involved in the search for a vaccine. Bang, $40 billion <laughs> ETF. Um, Next question. <laughs> but I think the important thing that I've learned is don't mistake thematic ETFs for indexing. They are different products and they do have different characteristics. ETFs that track an index are the ones where there's a lot of research done on the merits of indexing and you know the long-term compounding effects that you get from holding an index which is you know market cap weighted the biggest stocks sector agnostic and so those index funds that are wrapped up in the ETF wrapper a one type of product these thematic products are a little bit i guess more risky or they're, they're just more single they're more single sector exposed obviously because that's exactly what the product is but they won't share all the characteristics of an index etf over the long term like if we put this in practical terms hack is a cybersecurity etf they're all companies exposed to cybersecurity, so don't expect 8 or 9% returns year on year on year on year for multi-decades to come because that's not the characteristics. They are exposed to one industry and if something happens in that particular industry, you could get much better returns or you could get much worse returns. If quantum computing blows up all the traditional cybersecurity, you know, defensive architecture that's been built, the hack ETF is not going to, get your, your 8% annualized returns over the next 40 years. So I think if index ETFs are the true drip feed in, don't think about it, get market average returns over a long period of time, your sector specific and your thematic ETFs do require a little bit more research, a little bit more due diligence and a little bit more of an investment thesis. Obviously not at the level of picking one individual stock because you're betting on a sector rather than a stock, but you are betting on a theme or you are betting on a sector. So just be aware that you're not buying an index and you probably don't want to be heavily weighted to just one sector or one theme because then you are exposed to one source of risk. So for me, I think they serve a really important purpose and I think they can be really valuable. It's just important to understand what they are.
2: Nice, Ren. Right? So this one comes in from Matt and he asks, any tips on working out how good management are when assessing a company, any resources that you can use? And this is a great question, something that we always hear from sort of the small mid-cap managers is to look at the management.
4: Yeah, I think, I I was trying to remember before this episode, we did speak to an expert about this in one of our interviews and I can't remember who it was, but hopefully some listeners can. We asked how you determine who a good manager is and they flipped the question around and they said, sometimes it's not so much about determining who's good, but about screening out who's bad. And the biggest thing you can do when you're dealing with a manager is if they have a track record of problematic management, you know, history may not repeat, but it definitely rhymes. And so just be extremely wary. So if a company had issues with Fraud or you know, market manipulation or whatever it is, um, that should be a red flag, and there's pretty easy ways to figure that out. If you Google almost any CEO's name, you'll get multiple Google pages on that CEO, Mm. and you will very quickly find news stories, be it from a major publication, you know, AFR, Wall Street Journal, something like that, if it's a big news story. But if it's a smaller company, you'll still find that information. They'll still be reporting from smaller outlets on what happened. So I think the first way I would answer this question is flip it around on its head and screen out bad management that have track records of doing bad things. Then the question is, okay, well, I know this manager doesn't have any bad Things in their past in their history, but I want to know if they're actually good or you know maybe exceptional. This becomes a little bit harder and it it becomes a little bit more difficult because you know there there are plenty of examples of a manager that didn't hit the home run in their first company but turned out to be exceptional managers later down the line. So I think this is where you know it's probably more an art than a science. There's no quantitative measures to say these are the characteristics that make a good manager but there are things that you can do to find out. So, you know, culture is so important and there are, there are th- things that you can do to find out how culture is at a company. Glassdoor is a pretty useful resource for a lot of those things. If a CEO has been managing a company for a couple of years, look at Glassdoor, look at how the company rates, look at how lower level people in the organization talk about the company. If they give it shocking reviews, if they give middle management and senior management shocking reviews, you can probably take something from that that maybe the culture isn't great and maybe the management isn't building the kind of organization that will compound your investment for decades to come. You can also look at things like what's their incentive structure. You can do basic things like listen to their management calls and see how they talk about the company, see how they talk about the market and their competitors. But yeah, I think it'll quickly become more art than science and more intuition than measurement because that's just the nature of assessing other human beings.
2: And to follow on from that, Ren, we recently interviewed Ed Cowan from TDM Growth Partners and they actually wrote a pretty good article on this. So it's worth checking out. It's called Nine Ways to Diagnose a Company's People and Culture. And they go through a few key steps here. One of them is exactly what you just said, Ren. Have a look at Glassdoor or Great Places to Work or other third-party assessments to get an idea of the culture that's going on. If you can, you might have mates who work at these organizations, have a chat to them to get an idea. Have a look at the board as well. You'll get an idea of who's on the board. Simple LinkedIn will give you an idea of what is their experience. Are they experienced in the industry that the business is working in? What level of sort of expertise can they bring to, I guess, lead and guide that company? And there are a number of other different avenues that can go down. There's no sort of trick to this. It it seems a lot simpler, I guess, at a surface level. There are a lot of tools and resources out there that you can find this sort of information. So, just sort of think creatively about it.
4: The other thing that comes to mind is potentially there are other professionals that have done the work for you. So, if you are looking at funds that hold that particular company, if they've released an investor letter and they've written about that company, they may include comments on the management that then give you a springboard to think about or potentially give you an opportunity to do some further research. So you don't have to do everything yourself. As we like to say on the podcast, there's no points for originality in investing. So if someone else has an insight about the management, the best thing you can do is steal that insight and use it for your own purposes. Yeah. So also just check out what other coverage is out there, especially from professional fund managers and professional asset managers in their letters to clients and stuff like that. You probably want to steer clear from things that have a commercial incentive, like if a broker report, and this isn't all broker reports, but if a broker report is extremely positive in the company, and then three weeks later, they do a capital raising for the company, take that broker report with a (laughs) grain of salt. But there's plenty of other people doing research on these companies, and potentially they have some insights on management that you can build on yourself.
2: Nice, Ren. Well, that closes out the major questions. We'll finish up with a bit of a speed round, so 100 words or less.
4: So this question comes from Les. Uh, Do you guys use options, and what are the reasons why or why not?
2: I don't use options, and at the moment it's just not something that I'm considering. It's not in my wheelhouse, and I'm very happy with the strategy that I've got. It is something that I'd like to learn more about and potentially build into my strategy, but for now... Sticking with what I've got.
4: I have never traded options. I know that I will trade options in the future. When that happens is a bit of a T B D. Um yeah. you just like you don't need them. Yeah, right? that that's probably the most important thing. But they are an investing tool that if you understand them, if you properly do your own research, if you properly, you know, do the maths, um, they can be useful.
2: Looking forward to when Equity Mates reveals that we've started using options. So this one's coming from Luke McIntosh. Have either of you guys started using your equity builder, NAB equity builder yet? And where do you stand on margin loans in the current time? So I think the
4: first thing just to clarify is that the equity builder loan and margin loans are structured different, differently. Yeah. And because of the different structures, they contain different risk profiles. Yes. Uh, they both have leverage involved. In both cases, you're borrowing money. Yeah. The margin loan, if things really turn bad, you can just be on the hook to pay back a lot more money. So to answer the first part of the question, yes, we've both taken the plunge on the equity builder. Yep. To answer the second part of the question, margin loans for me at the moment, they're always a tool uh, that can be useful, but you just have to be wary that if things turn really bad and you're in a position that really turns against you, your margin call could be significant depending on how much you've borrowed and how leveraged you are.
2: Could seriously hurt. And this flows into the next question, which is from Sean. We've both mentioned having the Magellan Fund. Here's some money aside. Can we go through the thought process of why we chose the Magellan Fund over Vanguard and other non-listed funds or global thematics. So in terms of the Magellan Fund, off the back of the last question, we've used our equity builder into the Magellan Global Equities Fund run by Hamish Douglas. Look, I think from my point of view, why did we not go with a Vanguard or another non-listed sort of global thematic fund? Personally, we've had a lot of interactions with Magellan. We've researched a lot about them. We've also done a lot of research into other funds that sort of invest in similar sort of markets and sectors and industries. And for me, I just love how Magellan structure themselves and what their sort of overall investing philosophy is. So I also think that at a time like this, giving my money to someone like Hamish Magellan... Is uh, probably Hamish Magellan or Sorry. Hamish Douglas? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Hamish Douglas. He may as well be called Hamish Magellan. <laughs> Hamish Douglas, in theory, he should be able to do better than the likes of a, of, of a Vanguard or Index, but that's not to say it will be the case at all. I'm just saying for some of the money that I have, I'm more than happy to give it to him.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's all right. And the only other thing I would say is... We haven't chosen them at the exclusion of any of these other funds. I also own a Vanguard or multiple Vanguard ATFs. I also own some different thematic funds. It's not a question of choosing one at the exclusion of all others. It's just that the Magellan Fund for us, well, for me, speaking personally, was a good opportunity to use this equity build alone. There are a few reasons for this. One, the timing of it. Given the current volatility, given the current uncertainty, I felt a lot more comfortable backing someone who is probably the best investor in Australia currently investing at the moment. Maybe we should try and get Hamish Douglas and Kerr Nielsen on the show to really slug it out together. But the other thing for me is that Magellan's off-market fund has a ten grand minimum and it was a lot easier for me to access that with an equity build alone rather than trying to save that money myself and not invest in anything else. And then get into it. So it's never invest in one at the exclusion of anything else. It's always a cumulative thing. And for me, the thematics, the Vanguard, ATF, stuff like that were a lot more accessible on market. And obviously, you can buy Magellan Global Equities. You can buy all that stuff on market. But given the timing, given what I was interested in, given Chris Weldon's two outstanding podcast interviews with us, I just thought it was the right time to do it.
2: Nice, Ren. And to close out, we have one from Jonathan Raymond. He asks, the core portfolio that we're building at the moment through our hypothetical portfolio on our Monday episodes is obviously to do and built around Aussie ETFs based on what we can buy on the ASX. What ETFs would we have built in our core portfolio if we were using international ETFs or international brokers?
4: Yeah, I think the main thing is the principles we would apply would all be the yeah. same. And I think, obviously, this hasn't been that much of a speed round, but to keep in the spirit of a speed round, low fees, good exposure, right structure of the ETF.
2: Asset allocation. Yeah,
4: so if I only had a stake account and I was investing only in US-listed ETFs, I'd apply exactly the same principles. I would want like Asia-Pacific, Australian exposure. I would want US exposure. I would want European exposure. I would want mainland Asian, Asian exposure and I'd want to get it at the lowest possible cost.
2: Pretty straightforward. So that brings us to the end of our Ask Us Anything for July. As always, please keep the questions coming. We will do our best to touch base on as many of them as we can. But if we don't head to our investing discussion group on facebook equity mates investing podcast discussion group there's so much activity going on there and all your questions will be answered but ren until then uh, looking forward to chatting on our next monday episode where i think we will be delving back into the hypothetical portfolio before we kick off some reporting season stuff sounds good
1: thanks for listening to equity mates investing podcast a production of equity mates media please remember that everything you hear in equity mates investing podcast is general advice only the content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of EquityMates investing podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.